Our reading is from Romans 12, verse 9 and 17 to 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew in the fifth chapter, beginning at the 38th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. As we remain standing, I'll invite you to pray. Heavenly Father, we would pray by the power and the work of your Spirit that I would be faithful to your word, edifying to your people, and glorifying to your Son, Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? They hurt you, didn't they? You can still feel the wounds of their betrayal or those callous words that you'll never forget. Or you may still see their judgmental, scornful, dismissive look they would give. Even their memory will stir up the pain once more. They took something from you that you'll never get back. They diminished something important to you, diminished you. You've likely spent much time playing over those interactions in your head, imagining doing what you should have done or saying what you should have said, perhaps watering, fertilizing, cultivating the seeds of retaliation, retribution, revenge. I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to get them back for what they've done. I'm going to take from them what they took from me. For some of us, those thoughts have given birth to action. We will balance the scales, bring about justice, take back what was ours. But has such a path ever led to satisfaction? It was Lewis Smedes who put it well when he wrote, the problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score, never fairness never comes. 
The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always follows this uncharted course, unhindered course rather. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. And even if our desire to balance the scales has never given birth to action, the headspace we give to working out how we would enact it fosters the seeds of hate and bitterness in our hearts, allowing that person and what they've done to us to control our emotional lives, to rob from us more than they already have. There is likely not a person here in this room who does not know something of this pattern that runs through the human heart. We will repay good for good, evil for evil. That's just how the world works. Tit for tat, good for good, evil for evil. Think of all the many revenge films or on television and in the cinema. Revenant, Taken, ABC's Revenge to name but a few. And in the opening scenes, you'll behold the heinous wrong done to the main character or their family. And then through brutal violence or dark deceit and manipulation, they exact their revenge. And we, the audience, we're cheering them on, convinced of the rightness of their course of action, unfazed by the brutality. That's right. Evil should be responded to with force, violence, destruction. But there is another way, a transformative way, a kingdom way. Do not repay evil for evil, says Paul, but rather overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. This Easter season, we're returning to our series in the Sermon on the Mount, picking up where we left off before we jumped ahead for Lent. And it's a fitting place to return, for Easter tells us that God's future has come into the present, that God's kingdom has come and is beginning to advance, that through faith in the resurrection, we are born again. The seed of a new humanity has been planted at the very roots of our hearts, and a new you has begun to grow incrementally, organically. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about that kingdom all about that new humanity. Now this kingdom, this new humanity, is it's nothing new. The scriptures have been pointing to it throughout. But by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders were interpreting the scriptures for the people in ways that were pointing away from the kingdom, pointing away from the new humanity. And so with six examples, Jesus reorients the law to point to the kingdom point to the new humanity. And each example follows the same pattern. As Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said. Here's how your religious leaders are interpreting the commands to you. But I tell you, here is how the scriptures truly point to the kingdom, truly point to the new humanity. Now this, Jesus' fifth example, has to do with how we respond when someone wrongs us. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now this law was the lex talionis. It was found three times in the Hebrew scriptures, but it wasn't original to it. 
It was found in many ancient law books, most notably the Code of Hammurabi. And it speaks into a world of tribal feuds, where it was not uncommon that if a neighboring tribe murdered one of your own, you would butcher their entire village, or if someone stole your cow, you'd burn their farm down, or if someone injured your eye, you would take both of their eyes. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was a law meant to put limits on that human tendency to exact retribution. If wronged, only take what's been taken from you, and no more. No pound of flesh, no twist of the knife. Now in the Hebrew scriptures, this law was found in sections that were turned over to case law. It was a principle that was meant to guide those who were administering justice. Meaning that the scriptures were taking retribution out of the hands of the individual and putting it within the court system. Now there isn't any evidence that this was followed literally. Okay, Moshe injured your eye with a stick. Okay, hold him down. No. This was a principle meant to guide the court system. How much is an eye worth? It lost productivity and pain and suffering. Okay, Moshe must pay X in compensation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, how were the scribes and Pharisees interpreting that law for their people? Well, it appears they took it out of the law courts and put it back into the hands of the individual. In other words, you have the right to avenge yourself within limits. It affirmed that natural human tendency Repay evil for evil. You have heard that it was said. But I tell you, says Jesus, do not resist the evil one. For the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way of the the new humanity. I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. Yikes. Do not resist them? Let them do what they want, say what they want, take what they want. you got to be kidding me. That's no way to live. What did Jesus mean by this? Well, perhaps it would help to first say what he didn't mean by this. He doesn't mean not acknowledging that what they've done is wrong, evil. Jesus says in light of what they've done, they are just that, evil. Name it. Own it. It also doesn't mean giving up a desire for justice. In John 18, when Jesus is on trial, he is struck in the face and he appeals to the law against their actions. The one who says, do not resist the one who is evil, is the one who demands justice, but will not take it into his own hands. But still, what does it mean, do not resist the evil one? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us four examples of this in practice. But over the years, these examples have been used to paint a picture of passivity, the the three steps to being a doormat, grievously encouraging some to stay within abusive situations. But there's nothing passive here. Every verb in Jesus' examples are active in nature. If someone slaps you, actively turn to them the other cheek. If someone sues, actively give them your cloak as well. 
If someone forces one, actively go with them too. There's nothing passive here. Jesus is inviting an active response that turns the tables on wrongdoing. Let's look at each in turn, for they would be incredibly contemporary and vivid examples for his audience, which will set the trajectory for our own responses when someone wrongs us. Example one. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, now if you're right-handed, the only way to strike someone on the right cheek is with the back of your hand. This was not a strike to cause physical harm. This was a strike in an Eastern culture that communicated disrespect, dishonor. It was something done to insult, humiliate, degrade. It was something that was done from a superior to an inferior. Masters would backhand their slaves. The occupiers would backhand the occupied. The whole intent of the blow was to put someone back into their proper place, at least as the superior saw it. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. That would invite a strike with a closed fist. And in this culture, though, only people of equal status could fight with closed fists. Jesus is inviting an active response that turned the tables on the entire dynamic. For it communicated, you're treating me as less than. Seeking to put me in my proper place as you see it, but I'm your equal made in the image of God like you. Jesus is inviting an active response that would turn the tables on wrong. Example two. If someone sues you for your tunic. Now this is a time when Israel was under Roman occupation. Rome funded its exploitive expansion through severe taxation. Now, the wealthy responded by trying to hide their wealth from the tax collector. How do you hide your wealth? You put it in possessions and land. But how do you get land? Because land was handed down through the generations. Well, the way to get land was to take advantage of someone who's fallen into difficult times and lend them money at exorbitant interest. And when they can't pay you back, sue them for their possessions or land, and then you can hide your wealth from the tax collector. When someone sues you for your tunic, paints a picture of a wealthy creditor taking a poor lender to court for failure to pay their debt. And people in that day and age only had two items of clothing. There was the tunic that was worn right close to the skin, and then they had the outer cloak which doubled as a blanket at night. And the law prohibited the seizure of a cloak due to human rights and justice. So to take a person's cloak was to put you in direct confrontation with Yahweh. If someone sues you for your tunic, actively give them your cloak as well. Which means what? It means you're walking out of court as naked as the day you were born. And in a culture of honor and shame, where nakedness is shame for those who see it and more so for those who caused it, 
Such an action would draw attention to the injustice of what was happening, exposing the wealthy creditor and the justice system that was supporting such extortion. Jesus is inviting an active response that turns the tables on wrongdoing. Example three. If someone forces you to go one mile, Now, the word force had military connotations. You see, at the time, Roman law dictated that any soldier could force a civilian to carry their gear for a mile. It's written right into the military code. But you couldn't ask them to carry it any further. And the Romans were merciless against infractions. Any soldier who would force a civilian to walk more than a mile could be flogged, demoted, docked rations. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Can you picture it? A soldier conscripting a civilian to carry their gear for a mile, and they get to the mile marker, and the soldier turns around expecting their gear, and the civilian keeps walking. What? What is this? I've never experienced this before. Whenever they see me, they go the other direction. Is this kindness? Oh, wait, what if my commanding officer sees this? Paints a picture of a soldier pleading with a civilian, can I have my gear back? It's an active response that turns the tables on evil. With each successive example, you can almost see the faces around Jesus erupting in smiles as laughter begins to filter through the crowd, as they picture how such acts would turn the tables in response to wrong. Now, these are not so much rules to be followed as examples to trigger creative thinking on how to respond when we've been wronged in ways that change the whole dynamic of interaction. One of the commentators relayed a story of speaking with a black Christian leader in South Africa. And he said, I asked him how he responded on the many occasions he had been humiliated and pushed around by white people. And he replied along these lines. He said, when I've been unjustly forced into some menial action, I I complete it. And then I turn around and ask, is there anything else that I can do to help you? totally takes the wind out of their sails, he said. They can hardly believe that any wrong party would respond like that. Walter Wink, in his book, The Powers That Be, tells another story from South Africa, right before the fall of apartheid. The Afrikaners were set with bulldozers to level a neighborhood, and they had police presence there. There were five women remaining in that neighborhood and they gave them five minutes to gather up what they could before the bulldozers did their work. The woman, sensing that these Afrikaners continued to hold puritanical sensibilities, stripped naked and stood before the bulldozers. And the police turned and fled. And at the time of Wink's writing, some seven years afterward, that neighborhood still remained. You have heard that it was said. But I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. Lay down retribution. Instead, actively respond in such a way that you turn the tables on wrongdoing. I want you to, for a moment, 
Think of the one who's wronged you. The situation that came to the forefront of your mind as I opened the sermon. What is something that you could actively do to turn the tables on the interaction, on the relationship, on the situation? Jesus' examples are meant to spark prayerful creativity. We could respond in many different ways. But I think Jesus' last example gives us a very good place to start. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the one is presumably the one who has wronged you. But notice that it doesn't say, give to them what they want, but give to who. Not what, but who. It invites us to step back and ask, what is the one who has wronged me really need? What is their deepest need? And how can I meet it? Paul in Romans 12 gives us some examples. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. Thirsty, give them something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon their head. That sounds like retribution. But no. It's an odd phrase, but it points to an ancient Egyptian practice where they would place coals upon their head as a sign of remorse. I think what Paul is saying is that if you want the person who's wronged you to admit they're wrong and leave open the possibility of change, let go of that vengeance and instead respond in love. Turn the tables on that encounter, and when they see their wrong returned with good, Their defenses can be broken. Their hearts made vulnerable. Your response may expose their wrong for what it is. Respond to their wrong with your wrong, and they'll just externalize their wrong as due to your wrong. Do not repay evil for evil. Rather, overcome evil with good. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in India. He was friends with Gandhi. And for Gandhi, it was the Sermon on the Mount that informed his response to colonial power. And Jones and Gandhi spoke often. And in light of those conversations and what Jones witnessed in India, he wrote this. We have demonstrated before us in this age, as clearly as if in any laboratory, scientific demonstration that there are three levels of life and that those three levels give certain results. The lowest level is where we return evil for good. That's the demonic level. The next level is where we return good for good and evil for evil. That's the legalistic level. The highest level is where we return good for evil, the Christian level. And what are the results of living at each of these levels? Well, return evil for good and you become evil. And nothing in the universe backs you. The sum total of reality is against you. You will quickly or slowly perish, but perish you will. Return good for good, evil for evil, and you become an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of person. The other's conduct determines yours. You get your code of conduct from the actions of the other person. You have no moral standards of your own. You are but an echo. You are but an echo. Return good 
for evil, and it leads to your ennobling and to the possible redemption of the wrongdoer. And in case they are not redeemed, nevertheless, you are stronger. Do not repay evil for evil, but rather overcome evil with good. But how? I mean, how could we possibly live this way? Well, the teacher on the mount is also the Savior, the Lord on the mount. In 2006, in Lake Canster, Pennsylvania, a gunman forced his way into an Amish one-room schoolhouse and opened fire, killing five girls and wounding five before turning the gun on himself. That same day, members of the Amish community went to the shooter's parents' home and said, we forgive your son and we grieve your loss and we want to do everything we can to support you in the days ahead. When the murderer had his funeral, there were more Amish there than anyone else. And later on, the community took up a collection to support the killer's widow and their three children. How could they possibly have returned such good for such evil? How? Well, years later, four secular sociologists sought to answer that lingering question. And they wrote their findings in a book entitled Amish Grace. And this was their analysis. They said the Amish believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross forgiving his murderers. And as a result, to be a Christian is to have that at the very center of your life. And because of that, they said, they responded the way they did. They overcame evil with good. To be a Christian is to have Jesus and what he has done for us at the very center of our lives. A God who responded to evil with good, to our rejection with love, to his enemies by laying down his life upon a cross. So may the Spirit root us in that truth, immerse us in that love, that we would be a people not returning evil for evil, but overcoming evil with good. For that is the way of the kingdom. That is the pattern of the new humanity. And so come, Holy Spirit, come. Form such a heart within us, we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.